Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now, michael at lmfm.ie. Thursday, the 16th of August, with much debate and discussion from now till 11am, this is Michael Reed on LMFM. It has been a scandalous week for the Roman Catholic Church. The Church has once again demonstrated how it has no interest in the protection of children. It willingly harbours child rapists and actively lies to protect the offenders. Paedophiles are attracted to, to joining the Church... Assumably, not just because of the trust and access that they have to children, but also because one of the most powerful institutions in the world allows them to abuse, and the church covers up this abuse. The most remarkable thing about this week is that it is not remarkable at all. The church has shown its true colours before. In Australia, prosecutors said Archbishop Philip Wilson showed no remorse for failing to report the repeated rape and abuse of two all boys by a priest. His lack of contrition, they said, was in order to protect the church. He was given a one-year sentence under house arrest. Then, a grand jury in America found that the abuse of thousands of children by hundreds of priests was covered up by the hierarchy. Cardinal Donald World, who will address the world meeting of families in Dublin next week, is criticised in that report. There are calls for him to be withdrawn as a speaker in Dublin. There are also calls to withdraw Cardinal Oscar Maradini from the event because of cover-up and for the organiser Cardinal Kevin Farrell to be withdrawn because of his association with Cardinal Theodore McCarrick in Washington who resigned over allegations of sexual abuse. Last night a fourth Cardinal, Sean O'Malley who is also associated with McCarrick withdrew from the World Meeting of Families to deal with abuse allegations in a seminary. We're joined by Father Jerry O'Connor who's a member of the leadership team of the Association of Catholic priests here and good morning Father, this is scandal on top of scandal Uh, and perhaps uh, Bishop Brendan Lee, the Bishop of Limerick is right in suggesting that the Church needs to address its dark past Well good morning and good morning to all your listeners, certainly when reports like this which seem to be based on careful research and evidence are are produced it's absolutely demoralising for Catholics all over the world uh, to realise that there is this dark side to the church. It seems that when any investigation almost anywhere in the world, in any diocese, when it's carefully done, that it reveals 
uh, a very tragic picture of children uh, being uh, neglected, uh, abused, being let happen and often uh, prioritising the protection of the institution rather than the human rights uh, needs of vulnerable uh, children. All right. And Pope Francis himself is culpable, isn't he? Well, he's culpable in the sense that I think, like many, he he struggled at at a phase of his history to understand that this is a very grave uh, problem. On on the other hand... And and, uh, And blamed the abused in Chile before apologising to them and sacking a hundred cardinals. Yes, well, I think that uh, it is good that he acknowledged that he was wrong and that that he reacted negatively to uh, those that were making allegations. He obviously found it hard to believe that they were credible. The truth is that the vast majority of allegations are credible and uh, there are examples where false allegations are made and perhaps... The uh, priests have been treated unjustly, but you know, even priests will say sometimes the church right now will still seek to protect the institution and will uh, deny a priest whom uh, allegations. But of course, by by their nature, that's what they do in in a very general sense. I'm sure there's many good priests uh, who are thoroughly ashamed, but in general, that is the DNA of the clergy, is it not? No, I wouldn't think so. I mean, if you look carefully at the reports in America, some of the whistleblowers are priests, and that's often the case. When they become aware, they follow through on the information they have and keep pushing until the issue is dealt with. So I would say the vast majority of priests would seek to find a just uh, solution when there is a problem. It's institutions where, not just the church, but we can see it right across Irish society, Mm. institutions their default position is always to defend the institution. But we're seeing it. But we're seeing it up the to the. Right we're seeing it up to so. the very present day, are we not? In this country, with uh, the resignation of uh, Bishop Macarivi uh, and Ian Elliott's reference to how he denied him access to records. I, I've seen that comment. I think that's a new comment. I'm not fully aware of the issues involved, but if that is the case. Um, the, the, the former bishop has a case to answer and he, he, he should respond to Ian Elliott's comments uh, because it, it would appear that if he was seeking to hide relevant salient information from Ian Elliott that it was inappropriate but the, perhaps the bishop has a, a rationale for that action but I'm, it, it, was, it just seems uh, wrong. It certainly does seem wrong, doesn't it? Uh, and uh, the interview that Ian Elliott gave uh, to Patsy McGarry in the Irish Times, uh, which features on the front page of uh, the paper uh, and uh, continues on the inside pages, gives a very telling insight into the workings of the Catholic Church and how it tries uh, to block justice to victims of paedophiles, priests who rape and abuse children uh, and cover up that uh, abuse uh, because uh, this is uh, the man who head up, uh, headed up the investigation team into child protection in the Catholic Church. Well, I, I've sat in television studios with Patsy McGarry, and he has agreed with me that the Church in Ireland has taken huge steps to try and respond according to the highest, best international standards, and on the whole, it is doing so. That is why... The case from Dremore that you're referring to is extremely uh, concerning if there are still bishops that are not following and adhering to the seven internationally accepted best 
uh, practice standards when it comes to managing issues of allegations, etc. So I, I would think that at times when we have these debates, that we forget that in Ireland the mm. church has taken momentous steps, enormous steps to try and make all places where uh, children gather in church settings safe, to manage uh, the issues of allegations correctly, to ensure that justice is given priority rather than the protection of the institution. Mm. And also, uh, because this is an issue, and I was on your show, I think, previously about this, mm-hmm. to try and make sure that those that whom allegations are made against are also uh, treated uh, fairly and justly because there's always a balance of rights in these things. And as we know, sometimes there are uh, false allegations made, but I'm not trying to distract mm. from the core of this week's dreadful news uh, for the for, for about the church from the United States. But, but I know that... Mm-hmm. But States it's not just the United States, and I suppose that's what Ian Elliott has been looking at here, and we've had report after report. We, we've had the mother and uh, baby homes uh, and all that's uh, associated with how the church has acted in terms of human rights issues. We've had the Magdalene laundries, we've had institutional uh, abuse, clerical uh, abuse, and uh, the uh, abuse by priests uh, and indeed all of the reports uh, that have ensued since the Ferns report and the follow-up investigations by Ian Elliott uh, and how he spoke about one of the most recent events and to the abuse of so many children by Father Maliki Finnegan, how Bishop McAreevy covered that up and wouldn't furnish him with the records in relation to that. The former President Mary McAleese has asked the Pope to visit with uh, the victims of Father Michael Finnegan, Maliki Finnegan, and uh, Ian Elliott is saying that the Pope's record on child protection is dismal. Well, I mean, I have the highest of respect for Ian Elliott, and I, you know, we are in a changed landscape in Ireland, and you can review the uh, investigations, you can review the annual mm. performance ratings uh, of dioceses of religious congregations, and most of them have taken huge strides towards uh, having a, a very uh, strengthened child safeguarding environment. But you're at odds with Ian Elliott in relation to this quite clearly because he's saying that that's exactly the problem, that we're not in a, a changed landscape, that we must change the landscape and that the Pope must come here and tell us what we're going to do now. Rather than saying, oh, I'm sorry about that, tell us what we're going to do now to protect children. That's what Ian Elliott is calling for and he's saying that canon law must be reformed because of this deferential attitude that the hierarchy has or, or that the clergy has to the hierarchy in order to protect the church? Well, Ian Elliot um, has also praised the church for having taken very significant steps. Uh, so the issue of Dremore, I have to say to you and your listeners, I am not aware of the details of that other than what Ian Elliot has said. I would like the bishop to respond or the former bishop or someone from the diocese. Um, I have the highest respect for Ian Elliot. In terms of Pope Francis, having a, a disastrous uh, record, etc., my sense is uh, that you know, he ha- is taking a zero-tolerance approach to allegations that emerge, etc., and that there's evidence of that right throughout the world, and that goes right up to the level of uh, bishop. What, what I think is difficult within the church in certain settings is a clerical mindset. You can put in very good structures, systems, try to adhere to best practice. But at times, 
there's a, a clerical mindset which will always seek to protect the priest rather than the child, protect the institution rather than truth or justice. And that is not easily decommissioned. It, and, and the other thing I'd like to say is that uh, um, I'm involved in trying to help uh, the church in other continents such as Africa around child safeguarding and working with groups there. Mm. And when I started the work, I, I had a sense of people in denial that, uh, uh, that children are abused by priests, etc., that there was a tendency to regard it as uh, just a sinful action and, you know, it could be forgiven and got over with. Uh, and it has taken extensive amount of uh, training to, to mm. change uh, mindset and then to try and build systems that are uh, uh, of the highest uh, standard. And so I accept that fully, I Father, and I have to say made, that... Uh, some effort must be made to recognise mm. that great strides uh, have been taken. And I'm mm-hmm. certain that many people, if, if you're describing what Ian Elliott said accurately, I'm sure many people would robustly come back to point out the improvements in the child safeguarding mm. Uh, by, by diocese, by religious orders, etc. Well, uh, I think I'm reading from uh, the report, and I'm sure Patsy McGarry's report in the Irish Times uh, is accurate today. And I fully accept what you're saying, Father, uh, and thank God that there are people like you in the church, and God knows there's many good people in the church, uh, but these questions continue to rise, and it's awful to ask these questions of you and other good priests but for as long as the church acts in the way that it does and fails people in the way that it does and young victims grow into adults and continue to choke their tears because of how they've been neglected in favour of terrible predators, uh, these questions will continue. Uh, And questions continue today. I mean, it seems terribly odd, doesn't it, uh, that uh, Bishop or Cardinal O'Malley uh, was to give a, a talk on child safeguarding, uh, but has withdrawn from the World Meeting of Families. As I said, there's three other cardinals and the Ending Clergy Abuse Global Justice Project has asked that they be withdrawn. In a letter to Archbishop Dermot Martin, they said that they wanted him to order that the three cardinals facing serious questions and public outcry about protecting brother bishops who have committed sexual abuse be removed from their prominent speaking role at the World Meeting of Families. They should be investigated instead, they said. What do you make of that? Well, I mean, people take different approaches. I mean, I'm not certain it's a good idea to say, don't come, I'd rather them come. And they were asked questions publicly by people like you and others and to give answers rather than say ban them from coming. I mean, I, as a priest, uh, striding to try and create a safe environment for children, I would like to hear that them answer those particular uh, questions. I, I mean, I find it alarming that uh, in, in, given all that we know, all that we have learned, because it is without a doubt that when a child is abused, you're talking about a lasting agony for that uh, child into adulthood. And if people can't get that, if they don't uh, understand that, then it's a very grave situation. Um, but we do have a problem at times in the church with leadership. I mean, those that are chosen for leadership are chosen often because they never rocked any boat, because they're safe people. They've never criticized church or church teaching, and therefore they're elevated to leadership. And often they've never managed anything. Mm. Um, and they're put into prominent positions where uh, there is huge responsibilities, and they fail uh, uh, miserably, and, and so therefore our whole approach to management. If you remember uh, the report into the Dublin Diocese, mm. I remember when I was reading it and going through the governance section 
and comparing it to how a good organization should be run. And I found uh, Yvonne Murphy, Judge Murphy's uh, uh, comments to be absolutely spot on about uh, poor governance structures in the church uh, that with often people that are not competent for positions of leadership taking, uh, uh, having prominent roles, and therefore the church is in need of radical surgery. There's just no doubt about mm. that. And what leadership do you think uh, the Pope should bring to this? Uh, I mean, people will be looking to him here in particular uh, next weekend. Uh, should he, he meet with victims and uh, should, as Ian Elliott suggests, uh, tell us what the church is going to do now to protect children? Well, I think that uh, it, it is important that he meets victims and I'd like him to meet those that are have dealt with their terrible uh, heart and abuse and have become articulate, outstanding spokespersons for those who have been abused. I'm talking about people like Mary Collins and Colin O'Gorman because I, honest to God, believe the two of them, they wouldn't be in any way phased by a kind uh, pontiff they would point out where they see the current uh, uh, failings in the church system. Because Mary Collins, as you know, was nominated onto an international commission in Rome, uh, but she became very frustrated with the way it was working. And I would love somebody like her to spell it out to Pope Francis uh, where the, the current deficiencies are. I mean, sometimes someone like a Pope is often surrounded by people that just, uh, they, they, they are careful about what they, the briefings that they give her, they give selected briefings. So in that sense, somebody like Mary Collins having a direct conversation with Pope Francis uh, I'm pointing out, uh, with no ambiguity, the deficiencies in the church system. I can only think that positive things would come out of that. My own conviction mm. is that Pope Francis is a very caring, compassionate person who was selected to try and reform uh, church structures. I believe he has a huge uh, battle on his hand with the uh, careerist bureaucracy that's all too prevalent in Rome. Um, and so I would like him to... Uh, meet with um, the likes of Colin McGorman, Mary Collins, perhaps not even to issue an immediate uh, statement after, but to let sink in what they're saying to him and then uh, uh, to, to, to make some type of an address about the deficiencies in church uh, structures. Jerry, it's good to talk to you and thank you for joining okay. us this morning. Father okay, Jerry O'Connor is a member of the leadership team of the Association of Catholic Priests. The stabbing of a man 13 times in Dublin during rush hour traffic on Monday morning gives an insight into the violence prostitution thrives on. This is according to Rowama. Rowama is the national dedicated service for women affected by prostitution and sex trafficking. Ruth Breslin, Policy and Communications Manager for Rwama is on the line. Ruth, uh, perhaps uh, you tell us what happened uh, on Monday morning in and around the Customs House to begin with. Good morning, Michael. Yes, it was a very violent attack which um, has been quite reported quite widely now and which certainly the guards are still involved in investigating. Uh, a car rammed into another car very violently and forcefully and then the passenger of the car that been, had been rammed was attacked with knives, um, a machete has been mentioned. He was stabbed 13 times and he ended up in hospital with very serious injuries. 
And what the guides have suggested in their initial investigations is that this was essentially a, a pimp war. It was a group of pimps involved in prostitution and trafficking in Ireland who were attacking another, essentially, a rival gang, a member of a rival gang. So we don't know the details of exactly why this occurred, but that's certainly the under- understanding and the intelligence we have coming from the Guardi. OK, so, and so the Irish Independent we... reported that they were uh, Romanian criminals. It was a five-man gang that was uh, involved in this and linked to the prostitution trade. That's right. So we know that there are a number of gangs, quite a significant number of gangs that are controlling prostitution in Ireland. Some would say 20, some would say up to 30. Um, They're gangs of all different nationalities, but certainly a number number of them are run and controlled by Romanians. And these would be remaining guys that are involved in a number of different forms of criminality. Prostitution is one of the things that they're running, but they are also doing, you know, different crimes, robberies, uh, pulling ATMs out of walls. They might be involved in drugs, the, the trafficking and sale of drugs as well. So, you know, I guess people who earn a living essentially through serious criminality. Um, but what we see and we, what, what the women we support bear the brunt of is that, you know, th- these are women that are being exploited by these gangs. We're supporting those women. And I suppose what we're trying to highlight is if they're prepared to treat each other like that, can you imagine how they're treating the women that they are con- exploiting and forcing and controlling for, for profit? I'm not sure that I can. How do you mean? I mean, I'm not sure that I can imagine how they're treating the women. Yes, I know. This is the thing. And I suppose we we don't just imagine it for Hama. We know it because the women tell us all the time how frightened they are of the, those who control them, how frightened they are of the pimps, uh, the tactics that their pimps have used to control them and keep them in that situation. There would be a lot of threats. There would be a lot of kind of psychological abuse and control. The women are very often threatened that harm will come to their families. So if they're women, particularly migrant women who are not in their own country, you know, they've got family back home elsewhere. Uh, whoever is controlling will, them will warn them and remind them, I know where your family lives. I know where your mother is. I know where your kids are. You do anything to disobey or go against me. You don't earn me good money and your family is in trouble. So the women are controlled and they're terrified in that way. But also they, they will uh, experience beatings and, you know, forms of physical control and violence mm. at the hands of those who, who are exploiting them. So we know that it's a very violent trade. This is something we talk about a lot. Um, and, and the women tell us, and they tell us also that they see the the violence between the pimps and sometimes they fear that they will be collateral damage in mm. that violence. Uh, so example, I take it they're more than capable of acting on those threats given that they can ram a, a car in the middle of the city centre and start uh, attacking somebody with machetes and knives and that sort of thing. Absolutely, yeah. in, in a very public place, mm. you mm. know. So mm. I think that they don't have any qualms about using that violence. And, you know, for example, we had a woman tell us recently of a, a, a story where she was in a, a, a flat, an apartment where she was being sold for sex. She was there with her pimp. Another pimp arrived at the door and violently beat up her own pimp while she hid in another room, terrified that she would be attacked next. So, you know, women are relating these stories to hmm. of the violence between their pimps. But, of course, they're also telling us that the violence that they experience directly themselves um, women are extorted. I mean, I suppose it, it, these men run run these this, the sex trade as a business. They're obviously interested in making profit, and there can be turf wars between them. And sometimes, again, women get caught up in that. So we have we, we were supporting a woman just in the last few weeks who's been texted by a rival gang in the area where she's selling sex, trying to extort money out of her, trying to suggest she needs to pay them protection money, or you know they'll be at her door. 
So women are terrified, and mm. this is a thing. This is this is the level of violence in the trade. It doesn't get more serious than that, does it? I mean, this is the sort no. of thing that uh, at one time we'd have only seen on television and would never have thought of it happening in this country. Exactly, but it is. And maybe it's something that people don't want to think about very much, or maybe it feels very, very removed from their lives. But I guess in Rahama, it feels like it's something daily for us in terms of women telling us what's happening for them. And these are generally very vulnerable women. Um, some are very tightly controlled. Some even have been trafficked. You know, they're, they're involved and in a position where they are in prostitution entirely against their will. And they're very, very frightened of those that they're, they're making money for. All right. Uh, and I gather that most of the time uh, that they are threats that aren't acted on, because if they act on these threats, well, then uh, they will injure the women and damage the goods, so to speak. Yes, exactly. So a lot of what we see, I suppose, is more that psychological control, the threat of harm hanging over them. But that isn't to say that women don't also experience violent assault. That may be sometimes by those who are controlling them. They also, women are assaulted by those who purchase them. So, you know, women talk about interactions they have with sex buyers where the, the man that's purchasing sex from them becomes very violent. So, you know, we've always said that no matter how you deal with this trade, no matter how you address it, you can never, never make it safe. It is very inherently violent. And I suppose that's why we were we were wanting to highlight the fact that we really want to see more action from Angarda Shiakona in terms of clamping down on those who are controlling and profiting from the women, but also clamping down with our new legislation on, on sex buyers and um, reminding everyone that they're the, they're the reason that trade exists in the first place. The well, demand that's possibly is there. the most failed piece of legislation ever to have been introduced in this country, isn't it? We are uh, hopefully not as negative about that uh, just yet. Obviously, it takes time for new legislation to bed in and become properly implemented and right. for people to understand that it exists. So we don't think, we haven't lost hope. We, there's absolutely opportunities for this legislation to be implemented really effectively. I think the guards need the resources to do that, number one. They need to see the value of, the, of clamping down on the, on the buyers in order to shrink the trade overall. And mm. also, we need to be getting the message out there to many buy sex that actually do you realise it's illegal to do so. This well, is it's been, it's we been, haven't had enough public awareness. It's been illegal for almost a year and a half, hasn't it, Ruth? Yeah, that's right. Mm. We're about 18 months into it now. So, you know, uh, we've seen, we still remain positive because we've seen in other countries like Sweden that had this legislation that mm. it took a good number of years for it really to bed in and be, be effective. So we're still pushing for that to happen. We're still pushing for guards to, you know, really take it on board. And we're still pushing for the government, and there's hopefully going to be movement on this in the future, to do some public awareness raising, to let everyone in the country know this is illegal, this is something that isn't acceptable, it's not deemed acceptable anymore because you're fueling a very mm. harmful trade. But, but we know men are buying sex, and we also know that men aren't being arrested for buying sex despite it being illegal for a year and a half. That's right. So there has been a small number of arrests that we are aware of, but there, to date we haven't heard of any successful prosecutions yet. So we would like to see actually more targeted, proactive uh, operations by the guards to focus on sex buyers. Take away the customers, you stop the trade. That's the theory, exactly. put simply, isn't it? Okay, Ruth. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed, Great. as thank always, for joining us. Thank you. Ruth Breslin, Policy and Communications Manager with Ruwama. Now, the Office of uh, the President has received €30 million from uh, the Exchequer over the past seven years. Has the President and his officials spent €30 million? I've no idea. If they did, what did they spend it on? Haven't really got a a clue. Uh, And was that money spent wisely? 
don't even know why you're asking. Uh, Sean Fleming is a Fianna Fáil TD for Leash. He's uh, the chairman of the Public Accounts Committee. He's on the line. And Sean, you'd like to be able to answer those questions, wouldn't you? I would indeed. And what has happened in recent weeks, obviously with a presidential election coming up, journalists who are doing their job have been inquiring and making investigations in relation to, you know, how and what went on in Oris and Uchtaran over the last seven years and they realised there was a cost of about seven million to put in some routine freedom of information questions about some of the expenditure. To be told Oris and Uchtaran, the President's establishment, is exempt and excluded and outside the freedom of information. So they could get no information at all, which was a big surprise to a lot of people. But that's the law and we can talk about that separately. Mm. But then they asked myself as chairman of the Public Accounts Committee and I said, yeah, there's no problem. And they expenditure for the Oris and Uchtaran comes before the public accounts every year. Um, we haven't had a public meeting on the matter in, I don't remember when, you know, there are 40 different government departments and we don't get to every one of them every year. And I said the, the committee would be open to considering looking at the matter as soon as we come back in September. But it'll be up to the committee and the PAC Public Accounts Committee will be able to ask a lot of questions, not of the President personally, let's mm. hear about that. It would be the Secretary-General who's over expenditure for Oris and Uchtaran, who happens to be Martin Fraser, the Secretary-General of the Taoiseach's office. So the Taoiseach's Department Secretary-General oversees and is the accounting officer for everything that happens in Oris and Uchtaran. So uh, he would be the person coming in to answer. Uh, and signs the checks and yeah, exactly. will be accountable and so on. Uh, but uh, on the face of things... What do you think of the cost of having a, a president? Uh, a little over four million a year. Do you think that's value for money? Well, actually, it's about it's about seven million per annum because the accounts that they do produce that the Oris Nukteron uh, presents to the controller and auditor general show about four million. Now, a million of that is um, the money that goes out the centenary bounty to people who are reach 100 years of age so that couldn't be considered anything to do with the president so that comes out of it but the big issue OPW spends two and a half million out of their budget separate from Oris Nukteron on Oris Nukteron and the Department of Foreign Affairs spend money um, on travel presumably for Oris Nukteron but not paid for by Oris Nukteron so when you add it all up government departments spend about seven million per annum um, in relation to Oris Nukteron. Value for money, do you think? Uh, I don't know. Mm. I'd be upfront. I have an open mind on it. I'm Mm. not against, you know, I think we need a proper presidency. Um, It's important to have a president in a democracy because we don't want to have a monarchy where there's no election. So I think if you have a president um, and a presidency, there is a cost. It's in the Constitution since 1947. And, you know, I think the PAC, if we examine it, will come to our, you know, we let the people decide themselves. So it's important with a presidential election coming up, we won't make a judgment as to whether that million was well spent or not spent. We will put the information out there, say to the people, there's the facts, you make your own decision, because I wouldn't like the Public Accounts Committee to be making judgments in the run-up to an election. Mm. Uh, and there is a, a problem even with this discussion in the run-up uh, to a, an election because uh, there's the risk, at least, of giving the impression uh, that money is being squandered. Yeah, and like I will say the Public Accounts Commission meets every every week now when it all is sitting and we have lots of bodies in. And yes, sometimes there are just difficult decisions or discussions in relation to what was bad expenditure decision but lots of departments come in and out 
and account for themselves perfectly and you at, at the end of the meeting you say they do a good job you know so mm. welfare is one particular example they're on total top of all their payments to do a really thorough job and um, of course there's a tiny element of overclaiming in there is maybe a small percent but they do their very best to get on top of that so some departments come out of a PAC meeting very well but I think at this stage given that freedom of information can't get any legislation can't get any information and if the PAC decides not to go there I think the vacuum and people will say what's going on and what are they hiding that could be worse for the office of the president rather than putting the information out there might be a little embarrassing as to the most expensive hotel he stayed in three Mm. years ago but I hope the people will see beyond those, those issues those who want to spend their time talking about that fine but you know, I'm sure when foreign heads of state come to Ireland, they stay in, you know, in the most suitable location for a head of state. OK, but uh, what is the potential upshot of all of this? Is it uh, that uh, Michael Lee Higgins or the next president will be travelling by Ryanair and staying in travel lodge hotels? No, and I personally wouldn't agree with that. And I made a remark um, yesterday talking to somebody else. You know, why, when I was asked, why don't they take the train, etc. And I think he's done that on a couple of occasions. Right. But, you know, and we yeah. won't make the crack about the free pass and the cost of nothing, you know. Mm. But um, no, I wouldn't, I would, I think the people of Ireland, look, we love to whinge and crib and somebody stay in the fancy hotel. But at the same time, you look when, even when the Queen of England came down, people admired it, have done with dignity and style. And it made everybody look good. And I think when the Irish president goes abroad and he operates with dignity and style, whoever the president mm. is, I'm not talking about this particular president, I think people feel he's done a good job or she has done a good job. So, you know, I think we have to get over this. But I, I take it most of, of the spending is on hosting uh, dignitaries uh, and bringing people to this country and entertaining here because... I'd imagine uh, that the president doesn't spend much, doesn't have to pay for hotels when he goes uh, abroad, uh, that he's an well, invited to, guest. To give you the information I would have, hmm. like there's 30 staff in Oris in Uktaran, and that costs a million and a half. So you right. know, that's the staff that work up there. So I don't think anybody can crib. I'm sure they're on public sector pay rates. Hmm. You know? And that's out of the four million or that's so. That's out of the four yeah. million. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and then... Uh, you know, and then the, the big issue is part of the cost I've just mentioned is the guards and mm. the soldiers who accompany the president at events. Nobody can argue about that, you know. Mm. So then the, the other big issue, the only two issues people will concentrate on is the payment by the Office of Work. I think it's a good idea. President invites to be. I've met so many people over the last few years that were invited to something in Oris and Uchtar on the last umpteen years. I You've known my TD, have not one of those invitations. But it's good to hear that mm. when you hear somebody say, no, I was in Oris and Uchtaran last year. And then, secondly, the cost of those receptions and the cost of the foreign travel. And I think it's quite possible people will be pleased to see there's no extravagant or waste of expenditure. And But I think it's no harm to have the public debate on it, you know? Mm-hmm. I was actually invited to an event once at Oris and Uchtaran, and uh, it it was a fairly modest uh, event. I wouldn't say the uh, spending was exorbitant, uh, uh, but uh, that was uh, for some minions like myself who were in uh, attendance. I, I'm sure that uh, yeah, there's some lavish time. spending when great dignitaries come. But uh, in the same way that when uh, Queen Elizabeth visited Ireland, uh, she didn't have to pay to stay in a hotel or whatever it was. I'd be very, very surprised. I'd imagine that Michael D. Higgins may be staying in some of the best hotels in the world, uh, but as a guest of the state that he's visiting. 
Well, I, I, the way I think it works, and that's why it'll be helpful, mm. I think the Department of Foreign Affairs books and pays for the oh, hotels. do they? Out of their budget. And I would say if a foreign mm. president comes to Ireland, his country, I, I would think, and there you are, I'm the chairman of the PAC, I'm right. not sure, mm. so I think wouldn't it be good to be able to answer that question accurately before the election? Mm. You know, that's what I think. It would be helpful. I don't have, I probably have a bit more knowledge than more people, but I'd be happy to put all the information out there and that people you know, make up their own mind. And again, obviously, the salary of the president and the pensions of retired presidents also comes out of the figure I just mentioned as well. So, you know, we have Mary McAleese and Mary Robinson's pension and Michael D's salary coming out of the figures I mentioned. So you can see straight away, you can account for a lot of the money up, up quite easily. And uh, I think it's really the expenditure in Oris and on the foreign trips is what suppose journalists will concentrate on you know mm. but I just want to put the facts out there yeah but I mean when you think about what we spend each year as a, a country in the region of what 60,000 million about, right. uh, and you're talking about 7 million yeah. uh, it's really small change it's for one individual uh, it's a huge amount of money obviously uh, but given the importance of the role as the ambassador for this country uh, surely it's not that uh, important, is it? And and in fact, I'll be upfront and say Mm. this, people will be surprised. You know, at the beginning of this year, I looked at this and said, will we have a meeting on it as the Public Accounts Committee? And I look at social protection and billions of money in the Mm. HSE and the Department of Agriculture. And I actually said to myself, there's not a big budget here. We don't need, you know, there are bigger departments with bigger budgets need to be examined by the PAC. And I just didn't invite it. But now that journalists have raised it, They've highlighted they can't get information under FOI. There is an election coming up, and that's why I, you know, I'm not against. Um, I've not. I've no political agenda. But I actually think it's just no harm for people um, to hear the facts and see the facts and make up their own mind. And they might mm. conclude, you know, uh, maybe a president should be doing more. Maybe mm. he should have a bigger budget. I don't know. Maybe he should be doing less. But. Let the people have the information. I'm a great believer in that. Okay, well, it's the people's money, obviously. Uh, But we leave it there for the moment, and thank you indeed, as always, for joining us here this morning. Sean Fleming, Fianna Fáil TD for Leash, is chairman of the Public Accounts Committee. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Good morning, Michael. That interview at the top of the show with Father Jerry O'Connor certainly generating a bit of response. Jimmy phoned in straight off the mark and feels that the show, the Michael Reid show, is showing too much bitterness towards Catholics of late. He says that ordinary Catholic people like him cannot be held responsible for the actions of anybody and it's up to the police in whatever country to investigate and make sure that it's not happening. He says that he feels a lot of people are using what went on in the church in times past as a as a as a way of attacking the church when Pope Francis is coming to Ireland and it has nothing to do with Pope Francis. He cannot be held responsible either. He says what child abuse is wrong, of course it is, but that it goes on in all or all organisations and why aren't we talking about all the organisations that it goes on in. Okay, Jimmy, uh, I can understand uh, where you're coming from. I don't think... Uh 
uh, you should hear it that way. I'm actually very disappointed that you did hear it that way because there is bitterness, uh, but there is not bitterness uh, against Catholics or the good members of uh, the Catholic Church. There's bitterness uh, against the paedophiles, the child rapists and those who facilitate that activity and indeed cover it up for them. The institution that is uh, the Church that did this, as you say, in the past but continues to do it today and has seen the recent resignation, as we discussed this morning, of uh, Cardinal or Bishop uh, Macarivi and uh, the uh, decision uh, today that we're hearing of Cardinal Malley to step down from the World Meeting of Families because of abuse claims that are being made there uh, and indeed the questions that are being asked of three cardinals who are due to speak at the World Meeting of Families, let alone the hundreds of priests, 300 priests in Pennsylvania and the thousands of children, a thousand identified, but the Grand jury uh, in Pennsylvania reckons that thousands of children were not just abused, but that the hierarchy, that the church itself, the institution that is the church, covered it up. And there's claims then in Chile that there was widespread abuse and that the Pope then accused the victims of telling lies and then eventually apologised to them. The man who was responsible for protecting children in the church or overseeing how the church was doing that, Ian Elliott has told the Irish Times that the Pope's record on this is dismal. Arlene from Navin was more or less singing from the same hymn sheet and that she also says that there's bad apples in every organisation and that for some reason it just feels that everyone is out to knock the Catholic Church. She says it's disgusting what has been done to children mm. in the name of the church. Obviously, you yeah. know, she's not agreeing mm. with that for one mm. minute, mm. but she says it's very hard for those who... Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss have their faith because you do feel everyone around you is mm. knocking the Catholic Church. Yeah well I mean it's very hard to be one of those little altar boys in yes. Australia yes. who was raped continuously over so many years. Now that's not the fault of the church, it's not the fault of the bishop who's under arrest at the moment. It's the fault of the paedophile who joined the priesthood and raped those children. Uh, but the problem here is that the bishop 
didn't report it, covered it up That's in order it, to protect the That's church. It. And Seamus rang in. Seamus is actually a victim himself. And he says it took so long for him to get justice, Michael. He said everywhere he turned, the church closed the door on him. They did not want to know. And that made it so difficult and makes it so difficult for victims because mm. there's no support. It's nearly that they just don't want to acknowledge what went on. And he says he was about 14 years of age when it happened to him mm. and it's still affecting him now in adulthood. Well, if the stories you were hearing this week were the first time you heard these stories, you would say, God, it's remarkable. But as I said at the outset of the programme, there's nothing remarkable no. about the stories that we're hearing this week, uh, except uh, that... Uh, it's just not remarkable at all because we've seen it all before. It is, but yet it's still shocking, Michael, mm. I find. Mm. Even though you've heard it all before. Oh, absolutely. And by all accounts, the we'll extent, hear it all again. Yeah, the extent of it, yeah. though. Mm. Ray says during the discussion, um, it was mentioned that sometimes false reports are made. He says he finds it more a case that actual reports were not believed. How can anyone criticise a false report and not act on an actual report. Mm. Well, I, I, I think, you know, two wrongs don't make a right and uh, a false report is an awful thing uh, in itself and uh, should be condemned. A text from a listener who just says the church doesn't give answers when questioned. Mm. Yeah, mental reservation. Do you remember that expression? That meant when you just didn't say... <laughs> what? what happened yes. <laughs> instead of lying uh, you just didn't say what happened uh, and uh, that was a, a term uh, that uh, was uh, used within the church uh, in order to cover up uh, I mean they had a system for doing it called mental reservation Michael, we move on from mm, that to yeah, the leaving okay. search results. We oh, were covering good, yeah, that yeah. Uh, yesterday. Mm, mm. And a couple of comments uh, still. Michael, the students have picked up the leaving results and hopefully they are happy, says this listener. I agree with the listener in the comments yesterday who said there is too much hype in the media about the leaving search. It is all about the points, Michael. You have to look at some of the newspapers. There's pages and pages of stuff on it. Why is there a need for this? You just can't escape it. Mm. Margaret phoned in. I thought this was interesting and said that she is a teacher and that on results day acknowledgement should be given to all students just because you don't get eight H1s that's the equivalent for anyone listening the A's in the old days straight A's yeah straight A's does mean that you haven't Mm. achieved your potential Mm. she says as a teacher you get lots of joy out of those students who you know reach their ability or their potential Mm. and they may not be getting the straight H1s but they have really maybe exceeded expectations Mm, and you get a lot of joy out of that. And she says it should be a time for celebration for all, that it marks the moving on of one, I suppose, milestone to the next Mm. uh, chapter in your life. I think everybody without exception said that yesterday uh, as well. And uh, I think uh, it really was exceptional for anybody to get straight A's or straight H17, I think, in the country managed to do it. That's right. And they were all Mm. men or boys. (laughs) Boys. I couldn't believe that. Men, men. Yeah, most of them are men, Mm-hmm. Um, but I couldn't believe that because they mm. say the girls normally, per, you know, at that mm. age normally women. do better. Women. Or women, mm-hmm. whichever mm-hmm. one you want respect. to choose. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, moving on.
moving away then to uh, the presidential uh, situation and the FOIs, uh, Jim from Dundalk phoned in and says, I think it would be in the interest of whoever happens to be president mm. that we know exactly how much is spent on what. That way it's transparent, Michael, and not open to speculation, which is what is going on all the time mm. at the moment. Yeah, so well. he thinks it brings the whole office down when you have that kind of speculation. Mm. Well, few or fewer people in the country have uh, as much insight into what government money is spent on, our money is spent on, exchequer funding is spent on, than the chairman of uh, the Public Accounts Committee. So it was all the more interesting to hear Sean Fleming have all those questions and not yes, know the answer to so many questions this morning. Yeah. And, mm. and on the same topic, Gronier from Drogheda says, obviously, Michael, you don't expect the president of our, of our country to be staying in a hostel. No. But... There is no need to be too extravagant either, especially when you have people sleeping on our streets. Mm, okay. So yep. a bit of a balance mm, yeah, there. Yeah, I don't yeah, think anybody mm, would mm. expect them to be in a hostel, would you? Really? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Truly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not that there's anything wrong with uh, hostels. I've stayed in them myself. Well, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, I, 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 I'll never be surprised by what people say. So I'm sure there's a couple of people who would think a hostel is probably too good for the president. <laughs> yeah, you know. On mm. a student accommodation, Teresa phoned in and says that when her son was starting college he and three other friends went and paid the deposit for a house and when they went to move in there was a queue down the street of other people Michael Mm. who had paid a deposit for the same house so the point she's making is be very careful when looking for accommodation Mm. and make sure everything all the the I's and the T's are crossed Mm. and ticked yeah yeah, well (laughs) or go and see a solicitor if uh, there's a legal activity like that yeah Um, have we time for another Mm. one yeah go ahead on vaporing Pauline phoned in we were discussing that yesterday too and Pauline vaping yeah vaping what did I say vaporing was on the top of this (laughs) vaping sorry I'm reading what's in front of me Uh, Pauline suffers from um, uh, terrible chest problems lung Mm. problems Mm. and she says it's due to smoking and that when she started out she didn't know of all the dangers of smoking and hmm. I suppose that was the case with a lot of people going back oh, yeah. in time there wasn't the same amount the of glamour of Humphrey Bogart and so on Yeah, there mm-hmm. wasn't the same publicity mm-hmm. surrounding it but she says it's a horrible disease to have and slowly takes your life away and she says with vaporing we really don't know what the damage that that could do mm. did I say vaporing again with vaping sorry <laughs> I wasn't going to say anything it's okay. a new yeah, word yeah, Michael yeah, yeah, you're yeah, creating yeah, a new word here with vaping she says yeah, mm-hmm. we don't know um, all the damage that that yeah, could do well, well that research uh, did suggest uh, that 20, 30 years of vaping could lead to, to COPD. Yes, and mm-hmm. th- this is the point that she's mm-hmm. making and she's concerned about it and we did a- get a couple of calls from mm. people yesterday uh, who also are worried. Yeah, well... But uh, you I did point out it's mm. just research and... Mm. Well, yeah, and it's for people to take or leave and uh, I think uh, as uh, things stand, there's a, a lot of people who would argue that uh, better to vape and uh, not to inhale tobacco and the carcinogens yes. that are, are definitively established within tobacco. Finally, yeah. um, just on the Pope's visit, I got a, a, a phone call from Ronnie in Kells yesterday uh, to say that uh, an email has gone in from himself to request that maybe when the Pope is flying uh, into Ireland that he might stop off in Kells, that the invitation has been made. <laughs> so right, I don't know okay. whether that will happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, OK. Uh, just a, a, another comment, uh, if on. we can. Yeah. Uh, I just want to mention, if anybody knows Valerie Rogers in Dundalk, uh, that she's been making comment in the Irish Times. We're going to raise that comment uh, with Aaron Rodair and a little That's bit That's right, we are indeed, about and, the overcrowding yeah, on the trains. Yeah, let yeah. Valerie know, or if Valerie is listening, uh, maybe uh, she'd want to contact us as well. We'll 
we'll be uh, talking to Barry Kenny of Erin Road Erin about that a little bit right. we will indeed now back to the discussion about uh, the future of uh, the Labour, Labour Party and the leadership of uh, the Labour Party and if uh, Brendan Howland uh, should stand down it's certainly the view of some of the party's members seven councillors have now called for a leadership contest uh, the latest of them is Martin Farron and Donegal he adds his name uh, to the calls from six others who have said that because of uh, the 3% poll rating and the local and European elections coming up it's time for a change in leadership it's not the view of some 16 councillors who've signed a letter in support of Brendan Howland's stewardship and two of them are local based councillors Pio Smith and Paul Bell who join us this morning uh, Paul Bell you said at one time that the Labour Party didn't know what it stood for, that you couldn't identify what Labour stood for. What does Labour stand for? Well, Michael, I'm glad you put that question to me because I think that's the debate that should be taking place right now uh, and not the debate about a personality. Uh, as the president of the Labour Party quite well put it yesterday, Jack O'Connor, uh, that is required is that we understand exactly what we stand for who we want to represent, uh, and what parts of our society we believe that we can work with others uh, to make the necessary change uh, for working people and for poor people. So what does Labour stand for? Well, I believe it stands for those values, uh, and I believe that's the debate we should be having, and I believe that's what we should be bringing to the Irish people. Uh, And I believe that Brendan Howland at this stage has been walking through a very serious situation. We're trying to restructure the party, uh, try to make it fit for purpose, and indeed trying to encourage that debate. And as I understand it, uh, in September, in Drogheda, no other place, uh, nationally, all councillors have been invited uh, for the thinking uh, before the door uh, resumes its uh, operation. On the 16th and of they, September, he's to yeah, meet they, with councillors yeah. in Drogheda, but the councillors who want him to stand down or to make way for a contest are critical that he won't meet them outside of that date. Well, I believe that. No, I believe that that's where the discussion should take place. And I believe that there are six councillors or seven councillors, you just made your introduction there, Michael, that's out of 50 councillors. Uh, and by the way, there's other members of the Oireachtas who will obviously want to have their say, and also the members of the party would obviously like to have their say. Mm. I'm very clear on the direction I want my party to take, and I'm very clear that a change of personality without vision, without purpose, without an understanding of the direction we're going to take. But that's what is not the answer. is all about, isn't it? P.O. Smith, uh, do you think that's a, a little bit insulting to uh, people like yourself and Paul Bell and uh, the six people who want a, a contest? Uh, because it, it seems to be saying, uh, oh, you'll get a, a, an audience with Brendan Howland on the 16th of September in Drogheda. I think Brendan should meet with him and have a discussion with him. Uh, to me, leaders, leaders and leadership is uh, over, overrated in many respects. I mean, mm. if you look at Michal Martin this year with Fianna Fáil, I'd regard him as being a good leader, but at the same time, he, he, his party didn't follow him in relation to, say, the uh, But if nothing, if nothing else, would you not think Brendan Howland is uh, putting too much weight on his own self-importance? No, I don't think so. I mean, like, I think what's important for the Labour Party is building on our traditions having policies that really mean something to people and being authentic. And I think if we as a party, as members 
councillors and TDs and senators can can do those three things, then the leadership is more of a figurehead than anything else. Mm. Uh, and that's where my focus is on. It's a white-collar party now, isn't it? Ever since uh, they put on the expensive suits and the uh, fancy ties, uh, they've lost the leadership, this is, uh, has lost contact uh, with the working man and woman. Well, I'm sitting in front of you and I think I have one lace in, in one <laughs> shoe and, and I have no lace in the other shoe. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I've lost contact with the working man and the working, um, working woman. Uh, I think Social Democratic Party is a broad church in many yeah, but respects. but we're talking about the leadership. Oh, the leadership. And we're talking about the leader. Yeah, well, I think, do you know what happened with, with the Labour Party probably over the Brendan period from Howland 2011? And Michael Noonan. Michael Noonan, the most right-wing finance minister this country has mm. ever had, stood alongside his colleague, Brendan Howland, and introduced some draconian measures. Mm. Well, let me just, I'll come back to that in a, in a second. What I think happened with the Labour Party from 2011 to 2016 in particular was that there was a kind of a, a cadre of, of people who lost touch with not only the population that mm. was out there, but also lost touch with the membership. Mm. And one of the reforms that's taken place since then is linking in with the membership, listening to what they have to say, and then acting on that. Mm. Okay, That's a change that, took, that has taken place in 2016. It, it, there's no doubt about it. In relation to what happened in government between 2011 and 2016, uh, if you look back at the manifestos, for example, the Fine Gael manifesto was for 70% uh, cuts and 30% tax rises. But that's Finnegan. No, 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 no. Let me finish it off what I'm saying. Let me, let me finish mm. off what I'm saying. That didn't actually transpire. What mm. happened was that uh, there was uh, 48% uh, in relation to tax rises, uh, whereas Finnegan only got mm. for 30 And there was less cuts. Now, having said that, could have been something done that was different. I mean, there was an, an argument back in the time when the economic crash happened that there should be a stimulus. Mm. Well, there was two people that came up and said we hadn't got the money for it. Three, actually. Philip Lane is the pr- mm. current uh, uh, president of the uh, Central Bank. He said we don't have money and nobody gives us money for stimulus. Patrick Honan said the same thing back in 2011, 2012. Carl Rogoff in, in Harvard University said if you want to avoid the default position, follow the Irish route. Mm. So, I mean, somebody can speak very authoritatively in relation to what they think should and shouldn't be done. Mm. But the evidence and the reality behind that then is what dictates what the outcome is going to be. Okay. Paul Bell, what do you make of the argument that it had nothing to do with any of that stuff? It's nothing to do with policy. It's nothing to do with the working man. Uh, that what went wrong for the Labour Party was all these outlads uh, who were full of their sel- own self-importance, uh, who wanted to take a, a place in history uh, and decided that being in government and having a legacy was more important than anything else. Well, I think that a number of those people have a place in history, obviously. Uh, <laughs> they but, do, yes. And uh, I, I would like to say this to you, Michael. Your concentration, and I've listened to the questions you've put on my comrade, uh, P.O. Smith, and indeed Senator Nash, focus on exactly like what has happened in the past. And that's that's a fair point to start at. But what's going on at the moment is is that we are trying to basically reconstruct a party that has been severely damaged by its term in government. And there's no escaping that. And a lot of good things happened, which I'm not credited for, and a lot of very bad things happened, which people continually remind the party of. Now, the leadership issue here is very simple. It doesn't matter if it's Brendan Howland or it's Paul Bell that leads mm. the Labour Party. At the end of the day, there has to be a very set understanding of what the vision is for the party. What vision does the Labour Party want to have in Irish society? And where do we sit with all the other left-wing parties? Yeah, but, but, but look- and that's and that, and that, sorry, Michael, if I could. That question is not being debated because of this entertainment that's going on about 
which personality should lead the Labour That's Party. That's all right. That's all right. Well, and well, you know it's well, all right. You're I'm making not, that up. Well, I am You're not, making that up because you 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 know well, Michael, you know as well as anybody else that Eamon Gilmore wanted to be uh, the Taoiseach more than anything, uh, and was was well, willing I, willing to break the, was willing to break the seven promises on the Tesco poster well, Michael, in order if, to be. If you wouldn't, Michael, you're interviewing me or I'm interviewing you, so if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to answer. Oh, well, I thought we'd have a conversation. Oh, now you're having a conversation. Actually, I'm not allowed to answer. Well, yeah, I'm going to okay. answer. It is every leader. Party leader position to become Taoiseach mm. of this country. I would suggest with respect, Michal Martin, Mary Lou McDonald. Uh, it doesn't matter. They all want to be Taoiseach and they want to lead the country in a certain way. And that's that's fair enough. That's what people vote for. But when you make seven promises and break them, you the don't Labour want to lead it in a certain Labour way, you just want to be leader. Now, the Labour Party had to reach a certain number of compromises. Uh, some of those compromises <laughs> were made, Michael. By breaking well, every Michael, promise. Michael, you're either going to let me answer and take this seriously, or basically the, the listeners can just listen to you, now, if you wouldn't mind. Because, you see, I don't mind the Labour Party being held accountable for their role in government, and we are being held accountable for the role in government. Yep. Because 3% of the opinion poll is not just all related to Brendan Howard. Mm-hmm. It's related to a space that the party got itself into. And what happened was, in that space, Mm. was that people like me or people in the wider membership of the Labour Party were actually excluded. And now they have found their voice again. And they're having this conversation. But at the moment, the conversation is centering on personality. But why, it's not but, centering on a vision okay, for the country. But why are you, okay? why are you using the, that voice to shoot the messenger? Sorry. No, because no the questions I'm asking you, no I believe, are legitimate. Michael, there's no messenger being shot here. Yeah. What I'm oh, I, oh, oh, I think you're trying to shoot me here. Oh, absolutely not, Michael. Oh, I think so. Now, listen, I'm saying to you, basically, and the listeners could hear what I was saying, is that the party has to decide where its place is is now in Irish society. There's a lot of things after happening. Uh, The the potential of a general election is always there. Uh, The favourite, again, in in this situation, according to opinion polls, will be Fianna Gael. Now, where do we fit into that? What are we saying to the people that we wish to represent and fight for? You've got a housing crisis. What are you saying? You have, you have issues with... Uh, what are you saying? What, sorry? What are you saying? What I'm saying is that I want the party to reflect Connolly's values, and that means... So you don't know what you're saying? People, people, be allowed, well, people be allowed to actually you know, have opportunity in their own country, an opportunity to have a health service, All right. education okay. for yeah. their children, and housing. And Michael, it's very easy to dismiss that. But if you look at the policies over the last 25 years in this country, that's how we've arrived. So there is, there is a slight unfairness with the Labour Party taking the brunt of that. All right. A number of huge mistakes were made. I, ha- I have to say that because oh, yeah. I am one of these people that's mm. held the party accountable all my life. Okay. And will also do the same again. All right. Changing the leadership does not automatically change those issues. Okay, but the leadership uh, was involved in those mistakes. In fact, instrumentally in, in those mistakes. And P.O. Smith, do you think uh, it uh, was a forgivable mistake to make the seven promises on the Tesco ad and break every one of them? to say whatever was needed to win an election, as Pat Rabbit said, or as Rory Quinn, who was also desperate to get a a ministerial role before he retired... 
promised free third level education uh, and then went on to break that in the next breath. Well, OK, you're misquoting Pat Rabbit. Pat Rabbit didn't say it's, it, that's what you do in elections, break promises. He didn't say that at all. What he said was you propose such a campaign <clears throat> and Sean O'Rourke actually agreed with him on that one. Rory Quinn's uh, signing of the, uh, the, the college fees issue wasn't in the Labour Party manifesto. However, having said that, it was broken. Mm. I, this is what I'm talking about being authentic. Now is the time we have learned that lesson. Uh, actually, Rory, Rory Costello. John Burton. But, yeah, but, John Burton and social welfare. Yeah, let me come back to that, though. I mean, mm. Rory Costello. Uh, Rory Costello R- was Rory, a, Rory Quinn. No, no, Rory Costello in, oh. in the University of Limerick is a, uh, is a lecturer in politics and history. <clears throat> and he and colleagues from the University of Glasgow did an analysis of the Labour Fine Gael coalition government 2011 2015-16. And they looked at the party manifestos and they concluded that 60% of the party manifestos were, were actually kept in terms of the promises they made. And the Labour Party came out with 62% and mm. the Fine Gael with 57%. And when they compared them over three years, yeah. that, that, that's not to say... No, 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 let me finish. Yeah. That's not to say... But that had that, to do with gay marriage and things like that. I know it had to do. It had to do with education reform. It had to do with uh, uh, some aspects of social have, welfare. It didn't had have get, anything to do with water charges. No, the, the point about water charges yeah. is the Labour Party had mm. a policy before that. I mean, that there, they were went, so, there were social issues that were fulfilled uh, from the manifesto. Yeah. So this, the point I'm trying to get at yeah. is that there was work that was done that was good. There was work that was done that was promised that did come about. There was promises that were made that were were broken. Now. If you were to conclude from that that the Irish electorate should never vote for somebody in that regard, well then we wouldn't be voting for anybody because basically if you look at Sinn Féin, they never said they said they'd never sit in a petitioners' parliament. They're sitting in in, in Leinster House. Okay, now. okay. You can go through the whole yeah, whole yeah, lot of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So so I mean the premise is that. In my view now, the Labour Party needs to be authentic. It doesn't have to be popular. Mm. We can stand up and say, listen. I can do this and I can't do that. It's not popular. No, no, sorry. No, I'm saying it doesn't have to be popular in terms of just that's, saying that's stuff. That's one thing you've achieved. Yeah, it doesn't have to be popular for say, to say things just for the sake mm. of saying it. And I think, I think that's part of the problem that got us into where we are at the minute, okay. you know. Yeah, right. But I think, I think, look, we're a learning party and we've certainly learned and this generation of Labour people are, are different because of what we learned over the last seven or eight years OK we have to leave it there thank yeah. you both though for joining us uh, this you. morning Labour Party councillors in Louth P.O. Smith and Paul Bell The Minister for Transport is uh, coming under fire from uh, Fianna Fáil for failing to introduce uh, laws which would see a minimum overtaking distance uh, for bicycles of one metre where the speed limit is under 50 kilometres and one and a half metres where the speed limit is above that. The Minister had said in February uh, that this would be introduced in a a matter of weeks as secondary legislation. Subsequently, he said that the Attorney General has raised doubts about the feasibility of such laws and he's asked Seamus Wolf to look at other possibilities. Barry Aldworth, Senior Media Officer with AA Ireland, is on the line and Barry, it would seem pretty unfeasible to think that you'd have to give such a distance overtaking a bicycle. Yes, so I think the feasibility of it is one of the issues this has run into. The idea behind law and the spirit behind it is not bad. We want cyclists to be safe out there. We want people who are driving to respect cyclists and give them space where they do have to overtake. But it just comes down to an issue, I think, of A, enforceability of this. Ultimately, 
it does seem very difficult with the current guard of resources mm. for it to be enforced or penalised if someone was to break this law. And secondly, then I think feasibility, particularly in rural areas, does become a bit of an issue. There's a lot of roads in Ireland where simply you would not have the space to allow a meter when you're overtaking. And again, in those scenarios, uh, sometimes maybe it's not right for the motorists to be trying to overtake and they should wait until it's safer to do so. But I think feasibility and enforceability are two of the big challenges And even here. where there is the space on the road, uh, there's the question of uh, the flow of traffic because you might have one and a half metres uh, in order to give that space as so long as there's nothing coming the other direction. So you might be caught behind a, a bicycle for God knows how long. Absolutely. So I think that's, that's the concern here. It is a case of there's quite often not enough space. And again, you know, The argument is there that should you be overtaking in that scenario, if there isn't space, we ultimately Mm. want cyclists to be safe when they're out and about. But I think what the the minister and what the Attorney General Office is coming to realise here is we don't necessarily need a new law for this. So dangerous overtaking and reckless driving are already laws which Mm. are covered by our existing statute books. They can apply to dangerous overtaking of cyclists just as well. And I think one of the things that the minister has asked to be looked at is the feasibility of increasing penalty points for dangerous overtaking, Mm. which certainly isn't a bad idea. I think it's more enforceable. It's probably a more realistic way of doing this. Uh, And and perhaps penalty points for dangerous cyclists, uh, many of them who like to cycle for uh, abreast and have been driving this. Regina Doherty has been driving this. Kieran Cannon has been driving this. Indeed, Robert Troy of Fianna Fáil has been driving this. I asked Robert Troy because I really have never been able to understand the logic behind it uh, if he actually drives a motor car the last time I spoke to him about this uh, because uh, if you drive a motor car you'll know that it's not possible and when you talk about one and a half metres it's probably little coincidence that that would be the width of a cycle lane. Yeah, so I think this comes back to kind of another issue which I do have some concerns around when it comes to the proposal for minimum passing distance. I fear ultimately that the governments are kind of looking at this as an alternative to actually investing in cycling infrastructure. That seems to be the better way to approach this, invest properly in cycling in infrastructure for cyclists so that then they are segregated mm. from traffic. It's safer for everyone concerned. To come back to your other point, I think there is something in it that, you know, we do need to look at general road behaviour. So just as there are some motorists out there who are irresponsible, there are some cyclists out there who are irresponsible, there are some pedestrians out there who are irresponsible. It's very difficult to eliminate that, I think, regardless of your chosen mode of transport, you're always going to have one or two people who flout the law or who behave inappropriately while they're out on the road. It doesn't benefit anyone. Or or the aggressive attitude uh, that I pay my taxes too and I have uh, as much right to be on the road as you and that's why I'm going to cycle in the middle of the road uh, because that's uh, a very dangerous position to take uh, because you're very vulnerable on a bicycle. Absolutely. I mean, and it's understandable to an extent why cyclists are pushing this issue so hard. You are very vulnerable when you're on a bike. You're much safer when you're in your car, but your car can cause a lot more damage. So it is an area where there needs to be a bit of give and take. We need motorists to do their part, which means only overtaking where it's safe to do so, allowing cyclists that space where you can, being on the lookout. But we also need cyclists and other road users to do their part, which is you know, a, a kind of a, a balanced view and, you know, trying to respect the rights of all of us to 
use the road. Mm. Uh, and uh, I suppose the idea of one and a half metres uh, gives a great sense of security. It's a sense of security that cyclists in other countries enjoy all the time because they have cycle lanes. Why is it that we don't have cycle lanes? Yeah, I think that's a fair question. I think it's one that has been put to government by a lot of people. So minimum passing distance laws have been introduced elsewhere and they have worked, but they have worked in countries where A, there's proper investment in cycling infrastructure and B, a lot of the countries, maybe not exclusively, but a lot of the countries that they work in tend to be less rural areas. And I think that's one of the big problems Ireland faces in both minimum passing distance, but also in cycling infrastructure, we are a predominantly rural country. A lot of our roads are narrower country roads where there simply isn't space to have a dedicated cycle lane and then, you know, allow space as well. So I think that's one of the issues faced by government in this area. The other issue as to why we don't have proper cycling infrastructure, which has to be acknowledged, mm. Government simply haven't put the money behind us, and I think that's something they're going to have to look at. We know more people are cycling. For example, people might think of the AA as a motoring organization, but we know that about 10% of our members are regular cyclists, and that figure is only growing. So more and more people are taking to the bike. More and more people no longer rely on one mode of transport. So people use a car, but they use a bike as well. So we need to see government, if they want cycling safety to be a priority, not just look at, well, we can create a new law and all mm. clap ourselves on the back and say we've done something great. Or we can Put get your a, money where yeah. your mouth is. Or we can get a bucket of paint out uh, and pretend that we have a cycle lane. Is it illegal to uh, drive in a cycle lane? Yes, so it is illegal for a car (laughs) to drive in a cycle lane or park in a cycle lane. So essentially, if it is a cycle lane, it is for a cyclist only. Your car shouldn't be in there. Yeah, you'll have to forgive me for laughing because uh, not too far from here, there's cycle lanes uh, and there's uh, not enough room uh, to drive on the one side of the road and not be in the cycle lane. If you're to stay stay out of the cycle lane, in other words, you've got to cross onto the other side of the lane. Right. And I think that is a big issue. That That's not the only example we've heard of that very thing where there's just such a poor level of thought put into the road sharing of road space in certain parts of this country where there's cycle lanes like that which have been just drawn with a line of paint and essentially there's no thought given to, well, what's the ramifications of closing off this much of the road to cyclists only? And again, cyclists deserve their space. They need to be safe out there. But when we are planning cycle lanes and cycling infrastructure, we need to do so with respect for, well, are we allowing people to continue to use this road on other modes of transport as well. All right. Uh, well, I, I think the main message uh, that people should hear from all of this is uh, to look out for each other. And uh, if it's safe to pass, then that's the time to do it. If it's not, don't. And uh, don't knock somebody down on a bicycle for that matter. Barry, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Barry Aldward is uh, the Senior Media Officer for AA Ireland. I mentioned uh, Valerie Rogers in Dundalk and her letter to the Irish Times uh, today a little earlier in uh, the programme. And Valerie writes, Akara, I rarely have the occasion to travel by train, but as I had booked tickets to see Wicket with my teenage children at the Gosh Energy Theatre, a trip by train seemed ideal. I would save on parking costs and petrol expense, etc. Boy... 
was I wrong? When we got on the Enterprise in Dundalk, there were no seats in the standard class carriages, although the first class carriages seemed to have space. So we stood all the way to Connolly Station. On the way home, it was little better. No seats, although we did manage to sit on the floor. Luxury? Could I suggest that the Minister for Transport, Shane Ross, put his thinking cap on and try to stop this ridiculous overcrowding? Either abolish first-class carriages or put on extra carriages. I am fortunate in that I rarely have to travel to Dublin, but God help the commuters. Minister, forget about the Granny Grant and sort out this third-world excuse for a rail service. It's Michelle Valerie Rogers, Dundalk County Lad, as I said earlier on. Barry Kenny, Corporate Communications Manager with Erin Road. Aaron is on the line. Barry, how do you respond to that? Uh, well, Michael, I mean, I obviously don't have the exact details in terms of the date uh, or time of the journey. Um, it, it is very busy on services at the moment. I would say it's unusual uh, for people to be standing from Dundalk outside. The obviously, we have an enterprise that stops in the morning peak. It's uh, the, the 757 service uh, from Dundalk in the morning, which, uh, as a commuter time train, uh, is extremely busy. Um, but as I say, it is busy. I know... Uh, TransLink are operating uh, an additional service in each direction uh, a day quite a lot during uh, the summer to cater for the demand. Um, but uh, ultimately, uh, beyond that, all additional or all available fleet is in operation at the moment. So we're mm. seeing a lot of growth again, and obviously that's a good thing, but it does bring with it the pressures of capacity. Uh, but you can understand coming... the disappointment, can't you? I oh, mean, yes. it's, it's not cheap. Uh, and I, I think uh, that whilst you may not be uh, aware of that happening very often, I think it happens relatively often. And you do hear of people getting the train, paying a lot of money for the luxury, and not getting a seat. Well, as I say, I would always differentiate between the kind of the commuter uh, area and uh, and commuter services and uh, longer distance services. And I think it's look, it is a reasonable thing for people who are travelling to and from Dundalk uh, as a longer journey uh, to expect to have a seat. That said, we do have a situation where we have both pre-booking mm. and we facilitate turn up and go. So I mean, the easiest way to to do this is not to allow for turn up and go, but that obviously mm. would dissuade a lot of people uh, from using uh, the rail service. And for the vast majority of services, there is capacity. And how how, how do you mean pre-booking? Uh, in that you could book that journey online between uh, Dundalk and Dublin on the Enterprise service uh, if if you wish to to secure the seat. Um, is that a, is that a first class seat? No, that's that's for standard as well. Uh, we we've, we've online booking for our intercity services right around the network. Um, and in a situation, for example, where somebody has a free travel pass, mm. uh, which I think uh, uh, Valerie has, um, you can choose the reserve seat only option as well. So the seat reservation is then okay. there. There's, there's obviously staff on the enterprise. But there's always empty uh, seats. I mean, she is right in what she's saying. I mean, you see that all the time that the first class carriage is empty. Well, it's not empty. It's, well, okay, it's, but there's there, empty seats. There, there, wouldn't, there wouldn't be a first class uh, yeah. if there wasn't a demand for it. We have uh, a first class service in Dublin Belfast. We have first class uh, on. Uh, Dublin Cork and just on selected service on other routes. So in some routes there isn't a significant demand, but there is actually uh, for us on the Dublin Belfast. So uh, it, that's operated by ourselves in TransLink. Uh, it is, I think, proportionate to the type of demand that there is uh, on services. Ultimately, could, could, you suppose, not, could you not yeah. offer discounted uh, tickets uh, to people when you're uh, above capacity? Because when there aren't seats, uh, I think... Uh, Travellers, at least, whatever Aaron wrote, Aaron's attitude to mm. it is, uh, travellers at least would think that that's uh, above capacity because they expected that for the money they're paying, they'd have got a seat. 
Yeah, and look, I mean, as I say, from a comfort point of view, we want people to have uh, a seat because obviously Valerie's dissuaded from travelling with us again and that's not uh, good for us. I mean, ultimately, uh, in in that situation, uh, if somebody has pre-booked, then we will refund this as a situation with, with seating in, in that instance. But if people are uh, arriving at the station uh, without booking, um, and the, the mm. train is at capacity. Ultimately, it's that person's decision then to, to travel. So we do apologise. Okay. We want everybody mm. to have the seat. But if you pre-book, um, I mean, I mean if, yeah. you, if, you, if you do pre-book, well, then somebody else is going to do without a seat. Yes, I mean, I mean that, and, that, and that's the correct way of operating, is that if we have pre-booking in place, mm. that the people who have pre-booked uh, are, do get the priority. Is it not possible to predict the amount of people? I mean, do you not know... Um, oh, we do. And I mean, that's that. that is, well, if you do know, well, why, why, why would you not put on extra carriages? Well, then, I mean, Michael, we're not holding carriages back for the sake of it. We operate all of our trains and all of our fleet uh, at, at the busiest times to cater for demand. We're coming out of a decade when there was no investment, uh, when we weren't in a position to order new trains. Uh, and we're now in a situation, again, where we're at record demand. Now, thankfully, under the National Development Plan, there's going to be uh, huge investment in fleet over the coming years. But the nature of trains are, you've got to build them from spec. We have a different gauge here. You, uh, from scratch, you, mm. we have a different gauge here. You can't uh, go down to, to, to buy a fleet of trains and have them operating in a couple of months. Is that why the trains are late sometimes? Of years. Mm. How do you mean? That they don't run to schedule. Well, we have about 94% uh, punctuality on the route, but no, it's not. A, it's, it's not that's mm. not down to... Well, yeah, it's not, it's not, it's, it's not uh, unusual for the enterprise to be 20 minutes late, like. Well, I mean, you take last week, we had a, for example, uh, one of your colleagues contacted me about it. We had a truck that hit a bridge. Um, uh, that's one of actually the largest causes of delays, unfortunately. Oh, yeah. no, but I'm just talking about under normal circumstances. I mean, you can set your watch by the trains in Europe, but, you know, uh, you'd be late think, if you tried to I do don't that think here. Checked, I don't think you've checked the statistics for Europe recently, uh, Michael. But the, the, uh, the situation is that we have a two-track network uh, on the dublin Drogheda line. We have a single-track network on, on lots of our routes. An issue in other countries is they tend to have multiple lines. So if you've got an issue on a line that there's an alternative route. So, for example, mm. on the approach to Houston, we've okay. got four tracks. So if you've got an issue with Hazel Hatch on one of the tracks, you can bring trains through. Unfortunately for us, if we've got an issue, it does cause, if you like, the simplicity of the network means that there can be delays. But can I, ask I you? would stress that our punctuality is something that, by our own work and by work with our infrastructure and our trains, has improved significantly in recent Okay, years. can I ask you about the lift in Drogheda? I believe it's out of service now for some six months. It is, and we are uh, doing the replacement work on it at the start of September. It actually, uh, our engineers uh, uh, did an assessment on it uh, because of issues with the, with the actual uh, uh, lift unit. It had to be taken out of service because uh, it had, uh, I suppose, effectively its condition was such that it had to be taken out of service. We had to order the entire new lift unit. So I mean, we do apologise to people that it has been unavailable for such a long period of time. Uh, but th- that replacement work is taking place at the start of September. So you will see that lift come brought back into service very quickly. In the meantime, we're bringing as many trains as we can into the main platform, the accessible platform. And if people have specific accessibility requirements, 
uh, and uh, alert us in advance. We'll ensure that their train is brought into the main platform. Okay, many thanks for joining us uh, this morning. Barry Kenny, Corporate Communications Manager for Inroad Aaron, brings our programme to its conclusion. Our time has run out on us once again. Remember, there'll be a podcast of today's programme available on our website, lmfm.ie, this afternoon. Our thanks to Marie Kearns for producing and Eamon Doyle in the control tower. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.